Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Try to make sense out of the senseless, and if at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's go. going to see where this one heads kids because I've been up since 4:30 in the morning working and drinking coffee. So, you've been forewarned. This is probably a lot of brain droppings and mental musings, none of which may make any sense. There may be zero point in this whole podcast, but I'm committed that every Saturday morning I will sit here behind this microphone and if at all possible as I mentioned, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Um, some of the things that are happening on a positive note this past week, I just moved to book projects off my schedule. I cannot begin to tell you if you've never been part of the process of creating a book, that's one piece of it. The actual physical creation of a book is a whole process, but the writing of a book, uh, that's a whole nother ball game. So both of these projects are very interesting to me and both of them were already pretty much written when I came upon them and they came to me. The first one is with a guy that I played college football with way back in 1977, 78. And he went on, he was our tight end, and he went on to become a doctor, a PhD, thank you, and uh, work with the uh, the Cleveland schools for many years. And it just, he was, he was a gregarious, outgoing, fun-loving guy back when I knew him in college. And the only thing different about it now is he put a tie on. But he's also recently retired. And we were at a reunion together last June, I guess it was, uh, maybe first part of July, and uh, had not seen each other for quite some time. It was a great thing. You know, you get a bunch of old, broken down football players. We all still think we're, you know, flat bellied, whippy wristed, put your ears back, go get them college boys, and we're not. But anyway, in our mind, we're still playing the game. Great to see these guys. It's uh, It does my heart good to spend time with guys that, uh, that you chewed so much dirt with. And it literally and figuratively. Anyway, he uh, great guy, and he mentioned he was working on this book. And there's a few people at that reunion that knew that I had written books. I don't think he was one of them. So he mentioned it to me casually. I said, hey, if I could ever help, let me know. I do some of that stuff. I don't ever broadcast. I don't advertise. If, if I'm supposed to work on a project, it finds me. If I'm not, it doesn't. I've really come to that conclusion in my career. Never once... First of all, that I ever think I'd write books. I've written three. I never thought I'd write books for anybody else. I've written six. No wonder my fingers hurt in the morning. And the third part of it is I never thought that I would become someone who, you know, creates like, it's like a mini publishing business I have here for people who for the most part would never get published uh, because they don't have a quote platform to sell books on. And that's what publishing is really all about. It's not about the book itself. No one gives a shit at the publishing company what you write about. They give a shit whether they can sell it. I mean, that's business. That's what you do. I kind of give a shit about what you write and how you sell it. And more importantly, that you don't get screwed over by a publisher in the process. And if you're the uninitiated, you, you get a, a you know, publishing contract and all you see is your name's going to be on the spine in the front of a book. And you think, well, that's great. And then you read the contract later and find out it's not so great. So anyway, uh, I, saw, I saw him at the reunion. The next day he was playing golf at our college's annual golf outing. And a good friend of mine, Laura, who went to college with me as well, 
she was in his foursome and they're talking about books. And she says, well, you know, John does all this. And he's like, well, I just saw him yesterday. He didn't say anything. So Laura, who's probably listening to this podcast, I think I owe her a beer or dinner or something because she kind of sealed the deal. And two days later, I get a call from this guy, Keith. And he's like, uh, why didn't you tell me what you do? And I'm like, well, you know, I was having a beer. I'm a little busy reliving the glory days. So long and short of it is he sent me over his manuscript and I looked at it. Then he sent me over the, uh, the outline, I think it was, for the publisher. You know, and they get nothing basically except we'll print your book and then we own everything. And that's never a good deal. I don't care whether it's publishing or football. You've got to have some basic fundamental business tenets that work for everybody, in my opinion. So we got him out of that. And he uh, sent me over his stuff and I did some revisions and it was just, I kept kind of pinching myself thinking, what are the odds that uh, here we are decades after we played football together, had not seen this guy for 35, 40 years, somewhere in there. And here we are working together and we both get the biggest kick out of it. When we had our little mini early morning conference calls we were both giggling like schoolgirls. You know, remember the days of the past, sitting at bars and such and road trips and buffets and football games and all the antics that you do when you're in college. And then we talked about the book. <laughs> but anyway, so this past week, uh, got that all cleaned up and it's on a way to layout. And I get to help my friend uh, get his book into the world. And that makes me happy. And the second project I've been working on for almost a year now, uh, it'll be a year, I think, in January, February. So coming up on that. And it is a book about how energy rules our lives. And the author, Michelle, um, came to me through my good friend and gal pal, Jennifer Weigel, who you may or may not be listening to. She and I do a show on Sundays in Washington, D.C. called John and Jen. So anyway, Jennifer and I have known each other for decades. We help each other when projects come along and things like that. And this one floated along the river to Jen and got pushed along the river to me, and it was something I was interested in. So this is a much bigger project. Michelle is a prolific writer, uh, very good at what she does. She has a, a fairly large fan base, we'll call it, and she's already written another book prior to this. So she's someone that's easy to work with because she's such a good uh, you know, scribe of her work. But this is a three-part deal. This is the print book, and it's an e-book. And then it'll be an audiobook. So that's a much bigger project. But the main thing is to get the print book done, which is basically the script, obviously, for the audiobook. And just yesterday, Friday, uh, I turned into her the uh, finished full manuscript. Now, it's not the final one, but it's the full one. There's a difference. Some things will stay, some things will go. But after she's been writing for months, and I've been revising for months, now she gets to look at what this looks like in mass in its total form with all the chapters and like that. And then we go back and kind of fix up and clean up and do that. And we'll see how long that takes. But those two things were kind of moved off my plate. And there's a great sense of satisfaction I have when I've been working on something for months. And it's not every day. I couldn't do it every day, quite frankly. Uh, but there's a deep sense of, you know, this, this was good. We got this thing taken care of. But there are many times in the middle of these projects, not so much Keith's because it's pretty short. It's only eight chapters. But there are times in the middle where it seems to bog down. You know, as a writer and an author, um, I get these periods where it's like, this is just, you know, there's nothing going on here that's worth reading by anybody but me. And, of course, that turns out to not be true. So there was a little voice in the back of my head saying, you should stop writing now and go watch TV, which never happens. But uh, it's always an option. So those two things are moved off. Feel good about that. And this morning, the reason I'm up early 
is because I'm getting ready to put the uh, final touches on the audio for my second book, Every Moment Matters, Savoring the Stuff of Life. And I started recording these probably six, eight months ago. Again, it's not something I do every day. I have a lot of other projects and I make notes. Oh yeah, I can go back and record this and do that. And so as I read this book that I wrote, it came out 2010, so 12 years ago, I actually started writing in 08. So we're talking about 14 years or so of, of this book. Uh, from the time I started, it's still out there in the world doing its thing. I still get notes from people who read it go, I just needed this book right now. I wrote it in 08. It came out in 2010. And it's been circulating the planet for 12 years. But the audio component hasn't been there. And it was time to get that done. So I own the rights to my first two books, Living an Uncommon Life and Every Moment Matters. And as I outlined, the publishing process is just, it, it's time consuming. And I don't know that it's in the world we live in now. I mean, I love print books too. There are thousands of my books floating around the world. I don't know that I want to add to that, but I like the audio component. It's easier for me to do. I can do everything right here in house and uh, literally, and pun intended. And... Um, and have control over that and then not have to worry about going through the whole print thing. Because if, if you want to find copies of my first two books, they're everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, some bookstore. I always like telling the story of when um, Living an Uncommon Life came out in uh, 07. And it was such a big deal for me, as it should be. You know, I'd never written a book before. I'd been working on it for two years. It's not something I thought I would do, but it kind of took over. Uh, my life to some degree, and I wrote about 21 people and that I'd worked with and spent time with and learned from and the lessons that I learned from these great human beings. And I will never forget when the pallet of books was delivered, like, I don't know, 1,500 that had to go into my former sister-in-law's garage because I had nowhere to put it here in Chicago. It was a thing. You know, you see your face on 1,500 book covers. It's like, what have I done here? But um, true to form, even though there's a lot of pomp and circumstance, as there should be around writing a book, the book launches, I did it with uh, Bill Curtis, who was so generous to host the evening. He made cookies up with the book cover on them. I don't even know how that happens, but he did it. It was great. And uh, a lot of people there that, uh, that were important to me. It was, it was a wonderful celebration. Years later, I'm at uh, Barnes & Noble, a brick-and-mortar Barnes & Noble store, and they're in the bargain bin is a John Grisham book, and I believe it was uh, Anne Lamott, who's one of my favorite writers, and my book, all together, like touching each other. They were like in cahoots for $1.99. Same bin, different writers, different books, same price. And to me, that's like the, the full circle of a lot of this stuff. So I've done very well on my books and, you know, people still buy them and they move them around. And my, I have my third book out, Phenomenon, Sacred Moments, Messages, Memories, and Other Shit I Can't Explain. That came out in 2020. And that one I have for sale, you know, it's on lulu.com and you can go to my website, uh, auroramediaproductions.com and order the book. And I sign books for people all the time. That one's in print. It's also in audio. But working backwards to get my first two books in audio is a process. So this morning, I woke up early knowing that I had to get this audio piece off my mind. And that meant writing a new epilogue for the audiobook that is basically finished. And I woke up and, you know, it's, it's this stormy morning here in Chicago and it's really dark and the coffee's really hot. And, you know, I got the lighting just right in my studio and that prompts me to write. And I never know, ever know what's going to come out. And 
so I wrote about five pages and um, got all that done and, and went over four or five, six times in my head, made some changes and things like that. But the, the thing that kept coming back to me was about time and about space and about days and years and what has transpired in my life since this book, Every Moment Matters, hit the shelves in 2010 and really since I started writing it in 2008. I mean, um, uh, let me just share this with you. You'll be the first people to hear this, even before the people in the audiobook world hear it. So this is the script I wrote this morning. If Maybe you'll find some value in it before I jump off the deep end in a few minutes talking about other things. The process of creating an updated close or epilogue for this book 13 years after I wrote it is an interesting one to say the least. For the record, an epilogue is a section or speech at the end of a book or play that serves as a comment on or a conclusion to what has happened. Truth is, I'm not exactly sure what has happened since I sat down and began writing Every Moment Matters very early in the morning, the day after my daughter graduated from high school. I can tell you that I'm writing this epilogue around the same time in the morning. It's nearly 5 a.m. Chicago time, and much like how all of this started, I have a cup of coffee next to me and a half-eaten sandwich. Some things just don't change. Other things, however, definitely do. Most, if not all, of my previous life is gone. I was divorced after 25 years of marriage, and the house that I thought would be my forever home got swallowed up in the aftermath of the recession. The position I held back then at Oprah Radio ended about a year after this book hit the shelves. Dr. Oz, who penned the forward to Every Moment Matters, went on to become a household name on TV and, as of this writing, is running for U.S. Senator. My daughter Amanda is now 34 and had a second kidney transplant during the pandemic, and she's doing great. She has a high-profile career, and she's pursuing her master's degree. My son Andy is now 31. He remained in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan after the divorce, works on the railroad, married the love of his life, and he's building his future on the shores of Lake Superior. These days, I need them more than they need me. It's the natural progression of being a parent, of course. But it's been hard. Divorce is never easy, and it's been years since the three of us were in the same room together. And even though time has healed much and we talk regularly, each and every conversation is one I cherish, as I'm very aware that I have more yesterdays than tomorrows. When I started writing this book, I was about to turn 51. In a month, I will notch my 64th trip around the sun. Sometimes I look at my hands when I'm working on the computer, which is the same machine I wrote the book on with just a new hard drive, and I barely recognize them as the years have them a bit more worn down, thinner, and with the predictable aches and pains that come with time and untold hours of typing. In 2020, I wrote another book, Phenomenon, Sacred Moments, Messages, Memories, and Other Shit I Can't Explain. I've also ghostwritten five books for others who have a story to tell, and I've become somehow a sought-after author coach and produce audiobooks just like this one. I continue to keep my voice in the world via radio broadcasts and podcasts, something that wasn't even a thing back when I wrote the book. Now everyone with a phone seems to have a podcast. I've lost many close friends and even more that I knew casually as Cyrus the virus put the world on notice for nearly three years. 
On the upside, the Cubs won a World Series in 2016, something I never thought I'd see. And I'm working on a book with Randy Hundley, who stopped to sign the ball on that corner so many years ago that I wrote about in the book. That's about as surreal as it gets. My highly significant other, Teresa, has been the counterbalance to the difficult changes. Her high and infectious good energy has kept me upright more times than I can count. And speaking of counting, that reminds me of the TEDx Ontario talk I gave in 2019, which was 10 years after my first TEDx NASA talk, called Human Math. It was based on the premise that while life expectancy is pretty easy to predict, currently at 77.2 years, the pandemic significantly lowered that number from previous years, what is much harder to predict is how many days you'll actually get to make every moment matter. 77.2 years roughly translates to just 28,178 days to be alive, if you make it that far. Many of my friends that have gone before me got far less, but perhaps lived far more in some respects. I just completed a three-hour radio broadcast tribute to my friend John Denver, commemorating the 25th anniversary of his death in 1997. J.D. was only 53 when his plane plunged into Monterey Bay, and he only got to be alive 19,345 days. The late, great Whitney Houston died at the age of 48 back in 2012. Her allotted time on earth was 17,520 days. Carrie Fisher was famously known for playing Princess Leia in Star Wars and died in 2016 of a heart attack at the age of 60, giving her 21,900 days. And on the other end of the spectrum, former President George H.W. Bush passed in 2018 at the age of 94, giving him 34,310 days to accomplish his mission. And actress and icon Betty White blew up the life expectancy curve when she died in 2021 at the age of 99, leaving behind 36,135 days of love and laughter. However, perhaps one of the most difficult times in the past 13 years is when my longtime friends Dan and Kathy Creeley lost their daughter Molly at the age of 44 in 2019. Miles was given just 16,060 days to teach untold number of students the magic of reading, thus creating a ripple effect that will live on. But whether it was a plane crash, an overdose, old age, or a sudden passing, cause of death is nothing compared to our cause in life. As I sit here doing my own human math, I take the 28,172 days that it's expected and minus the days I've already had, which is 23,360 days, and my remaining balance is, drum roll please, I have a whopping 4,812 days to go. Less than 5,000 days? Ah, shit. That's a sobering number for sure. It breaks me down a bit, a somewhat depressing reminder that time is no longer on my side, but in the same moment, it's a spur in my ass to get about doing that which I came here to do, create and experience moments that matter. You see, life expectancy is one thing. What you expect out of life is another. The odds of being born are one in 400 trillion. The odds of dying are one in one. The odds of living your life as if every moment matters that is totally up to you. So that's the epilogue for this upcoming audio version of Every Moment Matters. And it got me thinking today about all the stuff we spend time on and how fast time expands and contracts and how fast it passes. I mean, I was talking the other day to somebody about, remember sitting in 
in uh, high school and you're waiting for the, the sweep second hand to get to the top of the hour so the bell would ring. It took forever. And conversely, when you're doing something you really enjoy, time evaporates. It's so relative to the situation, circumstances, and the awareness that we have. And so here we are, as I mentioned, you know, Dr. Oz is uh, running for U.S. Senate. And I, I doesn't matter to me, quite frankly, whether he wins or not. And I, I've already heard from my friends like it should matter. Well, the reason it doesn't matter to me is because I can't do anything about that. I can't vote there. I don't live there. So what I put my focus on expands for me to sit and worry about whether Oz is going to win or not, or the, the guy he's running against, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman's going to win or not, or one of the other myriad of political races where they spend all this money beating the shit out of each other. It's I, I can't. I only got 4,800 days to go. You think I'm going to spend time on that crap? Not happening. Every single day for the last two months, our mailbox is jammed full of political bullshit for both sides of the aisle. All that is generated by the money we donate, that they insist we need to give them money to offset the negativity that both sides throw at each other. That is insanity. So how I fall politically or what I, how I, all my only focus is how I voted when I went into the booth. I've already done that, out of the way. And there should be some sort of like microchip in my television that the moment you vote, there's no more political ads. I have not seen one that ever said, here's what I'm going to do, and had made no mention of their opponent. That would catch my interest. So here we are again, every two years, beating the shit out of each other, and then two more years we'll do with the presidential thing. And it's a teeter-totter that goes up and down, and most of the time we get stuck underneath it while the bouncing goes back and forth. We're always on the pinnacle of, of some sort of uh, you know, annihilation one way or another. It all depends on how you look at it, how it's presented to us. So if the GOP overtakes the House, it's the world comes to an end, as many people know it, and other people will be a great rallying cry. And if the Democrats retain, it'll be a great rallying cry, and the other they'll be pissed off. This is the world we live in. It's the one we create. One of the most important things that I've extracted as a reminder from Michelle's book that I've been working on for months is about where we put our focus. And, and the things you can control. You know, Wayne Dyer used to do this great exercise, the late, great Wayne Dyer. He would say, take a piece of paper. And on one side of the paper, on the left side, write control. And on the other, put a line down the middle. And on the other side of that line, on the right side, put no control. And I'll list the things you have control over. And then the list of things you have no control over. And the things you have control over will be a significantly shorter list than the ones you have no control over. So it makes no sense to spend your time, energy, and effort on things you have no control over. Because then you forget the things you do have control over. And if you only got, listen, this is the first time in my life I've been doing this human math thing for years. I used to do it when I was substitute teacher in high school. I had a lot more days underneath me at that point. So this is the first time in my life that I got less than 5,000 days if all the numbers hold up. Who knows? I may get 15,000 more. You know, if I double my age, I could believe to 128. Who knows? Odds are that's not going to happen. So what I spend my time on, where I put my focus is so very important to me. And the very last thing I try to do is get caught up in all the bullshit, you know? And, and it, while I know there's an importance there, I can only do my part. And that's why I always say, do what you can where you are with what you have. I think Teddy Roosevelt said that first, but I've kind of modified it. And if I just focus on the things that I can do, then they're in my control. And then I feel less... Like somehow life is not what it should be for me. And listen, as I said in that little piece, the odds of being born are one in 400 trillion. 
What are we here complaining about? You know, it's all a matter of focus and perspective. And while there are things that used to really wash my chicken and grind my gears, I've backed off of those things more and more over the years so I can focus on what matters most to me, like every moment that I'm here. I, I see friends of mine who their last Facebook page entry before they died was about how much they hate somebody the way they voted or something. I mean, what a, what a pointless way to spend the last day of your life, in my opinion. And so I tend these days to not do any of that stuff. I've said many, many times before, I have lost millions of dollars probably because I wouldn't do the political shuffle, either Democrat, Republican, or other on radio. If I would have gone back in the, in the day and, you know, right in the early years, probably my third year in radio, I, uh, maybe second year, I moved over to a, a radio station that had Rush Limbaugh, the late Rush Limbaugh, in front of me. He was on from noon to three and I was on from three to six. So it was six hours out of the day was Limbaugh and myself for like three, four years. And what an interesting slot to be in. 180 from Limbaugh on just about everything. But I also know that most of what he talked about, he was attempting to entertain because that's what he liked to do and goad people. And you know, if you can goad people to listening to because they hate you, you're still expanding the audience, and that's what sponsors are all about. We can sell your show because of the amount of people listening. So if you can get people pissed off listening and people who love you listening, that's about as good as it gets. It's kind of the backside of this business. I could never bring myself to even pretend or entertain one way or the other. I, the authenticity thing is just paramount for me, and that's not good at radio sometimes. And I remember being on the air for about eight months and getting a call from the syndicator I think it was Premier Radio Networks at the time. I'm not sure, but I think it was. That uh, that syndicated Limbaugh's show. And one of the people at my station had been sending tapes of my show to them. And they said, listen, you're really good at this. And you got a fire inside you. You have a great voice. You have great delivery. All those things you want to hear about radio. Would you be willing to talk politics? And it, they didn't say which side. It didn't matter as long as you're willing to talk politics. And I had to think about it. There was no money involved at that point. Nobody said, here's how much we're going to pay you. But I can tell you, if I'd have said yes, this would have been a very, very different route for me. And I don't know that I could have lived with that to some degree. I think there's a price you pay and there's a price you pay. I've paid the price for not doing that stuff. I've paid the price for not getting into the sports talk as much as I love sports and all, watching the World Series and come on Kyle Schwarber and come on Bears. Talking about it four, five, six hours a day, there's no way. One of the things that has bothered me the most in the media are people who know everything about everything but haven't done an effing thing about what they talk about for the most part. And that's what sports talk is filled with. I'm not talking about the guys that retire from the sports and the ladies that retire from the sports and go on and become commentators. I'm talking about the, the hosts that just go on and on. And I'm thinking, how can you know so much about everything when you've done nothing? And political talk radio is filled with this stuff. It is there to sell you things. I remember being at a conference that Limbaugh spoke at in New York. I don't know how many years ago this was. And he was one of many speakers. And then they had a panel. And on the panel discussion, uh, they went by and talked about everybody's bio and things like that. And out of the 30 people on the panel, I think two had ever served in the military, three including me. And only one or two of them out of all of them had ever been in any political position whatsoever. One was like a special appointment for Nixon. And I think G. Gordon Liddy was the other guy. 
because <laughs> he had a talk show for years. And I look at all these people are getting paid for their opinion and they've never done what they're talking about. And in the neighborhood I come from, if you constantly talk about stuff you don't know, it's called bullshit. And bullshit sells. Getting a little ramped up here. I've been up for two hours drinking a lot of coffee, kids. So in all of this, I guess this boils down to the moments that matter. What we decide matters. And what we decide doesn't matter. And for me, I've been through too many political campaigns over the years. I've seen them come and go. You know, my daughter always talks to me about this. She's like, Dad, you know, what about this and what about that? I said, I've been hearing these issues for 50 years. The same old issues every two to four years. It's really the same. Who's for what? Who's against this? And who's against this? And who's for what? It's the same. Just the characters change. Progress is very, very slow in coming in this country. It's hard to get 340 million people plus doing anything in one direction. Unless you want to buy a ticket for the billion dollars in the Powerball. Then you can get people moving. So for me, I take it back home and say, what can I do about the things that matter most to me in this moment? So whether it's helping people publish their book, like my friend Keith gets a great book about education, uh, the teachers and educators and the admin that will read it will get great benefit out of it. That's, that's a good thing to spend my time on. And Michelle's book is going to be great, Energy Rules, and about focusing on the things that matter most in your life. And here's some ways to accomplish that. You know, they were not taught that in school. I've never took a class in high school or college that said Life 101. Here's the things you need to know going in. Most of the stuff I took classes, I never used any of it. No one ever taught me how to do what I'm doing now. That all came as life experience. And the thing about life is you don't get to study for the test before you take it. You take the test in life and then you learn afterwards. And so these things that I spend time on are important to me. You know, and I, I say this over and over again, find the thing that pisses you off and do something about it, or you just stay pissed off. If you don't like the way veterans are being treated, go volunteer at the VA for the love of If you don't like what's going on with animals, go volunteer at a pet shelter. If you don't like what's going on at schools, go volunteer to read to kids after school. Stick your nose in the middle of the solution and you don't have to be complaining about the problem. I'm so much more involved in my high school alumni than I ever could have imagined when I walked out the door of my high school in June of 1977. Never could have predicted this. And now there's got to be, you know, hundreds of us gather every year to do this big event. We raise money for the school. We do something about some of the problems that we never had to face there, like homelessness. There's over 50 homeless kids in that high school. And the Chicago Public Schools has a budget set aside because there's so many homeless kids. High school's tough enough. And then be homeless and go to high school? I remember the former principal there telling me that they noticed there was an uptick in all these homeless kids. They're called STLS, Students in Temporary Living Situations. There's a huge uptick of them in sports and activities. And when they figured out the reason why was so they could stay in school longer because they had nowhere to go. Especially in the winter, it was warm in there. So... I could have got there and complained about it, said, why isn't the CPS doing something about it? Why isn't the mayor? Why has it? <laughs> or we could do what we do, which is a far better use of our time. And for me, those are the times that every moment matters. All right. Until next time, be well, safe travels. Thanks for listening, especially to my subscribers who keep this thing going. I appreciate it. Adios.